Welcome to America the Bazaar. I'm your host, Jordan Rausch. And I'm Jeremy. And this is a weekly history podcast that deep dives into all the stories that made America into the beautiful weirdo she is today. Yes. So this is our one year podcast anniversary. What? Oh my god, thank you. America the Bazaar is one years old. Yeah, that's crazy. It's been a quick year. It's been a quick year. But honestly, the longest year of my life. Well, it's just because it's been 2020. <laughs> right. Like, man, what a roller coaster. Right. But we kept doing this podcast, and I'm proud of us, mm-hmm. and it's been awesome, and we appreciate everybody that has listened to us. So. Whether you're a regular or not. Yeah. Just, yeah. <laughs> if especially, you pop in every once in a while. But especially to those regulars that yeah. have stuck with us. Yeah. There's a few our, of you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you. So we appreciate it. Yeah. Our presidential history trivia this week is which president... Had Alexander Graham Bell, the inventor, mm-hmm. trying to save his life. Okay, Alexander Graham Bell. So, telephone. Yes. Ooh. <sighs> That's a good one. I feel like I don't really know when the telephone <laughs> no, was invented. <laughs> I feel like it's probably a lot earlier than than you would think. So... Um, I don't know. I didn't even know this guy was a president, but I'm going to go with Chester A. Arthur. Okay. Okay. It's not him. Dang it. <laughs> I thought you were just like so shocked that I got it. No, it wasn't him, but uh, nice try. Yeah. Um, I will tell you the answer at the end of the episode, yeah. so stay tuned. Okay, so for our one-year anniversary, we are going to talk about Christopher Columbus. Um, Not really, but we are going to talk about Columbus Day a little bit. Okay. I thought you were going to be like, well, go into this whole thing where I was prepared to be like, well, Columbus didn't actually discover the United States of America. Mergo Vespucci. He wasn't even the... he Like, the Native Americans are the first one to discover the land mass, and then... Vikings were the first ones to actually discover North America, like the first Europeans. Uh-huh. Like Christopher Columbus was way way, way behind down the, the time. La- list. He was just the first one to like start mass genocide and uh, <laughs> popularizing, the yeah, North and America. capturing the uh, natives for slave labor. Uh-huh. So cool stuff. Fun fact, but uh, not so fun. Fun fact, not so fun. Fun fact, but. You know, almost relevant since it was recently Columbus Day, mm-hmm. or as I li- I like to do, Indigenous Peoples Day. Right. No, there's a lot of people that have adopted it. So yeah, yeah. he didn't discover the United States. It's <laughs> he didn't do it. It's down. <laughs> okay. After the end of the Civil War, America became an industrial superpower in the world. By 1890, the value of goods that were made in the United States almost equaled that of England, France, and Germany combined. With the increase of manufactured goods came the increase of manufacturing jobs. Many living in rural areas started to move back into cities, along with large amounts of immigrants looking to achieve the American dream. Hmm. So now we're getting away from, like, the 
We're getting away from westward expansion. Right. And also even just like the small, like, you literally just farm. Right. To survive. And you trade for what you need or you sell a ser- like a service on the side on top of running your farm. Right. Yeah. No, now people are actually more into like modern, what we like would consider like modern jobs. Mm-hmm. Production. And- mm-hmm. Despite all of the jobs, wages were low and working conditions were poor. In a country where it still felt divided due to the Civil War ending only 25 years before, mm-hmm. new divides were being created, rich versus poor and white citizens versus non-Western European immigrants. With all of the new immigrants coming into America, a large number of patriotic and nationalist organizations began to pop up all over the country, including the Daughters of the American Revolution and Sons of the American Revolution. In order to obtain membership in either group, you would have had to prove that you were a direct descendant of someone who had aided the independence effort during the Revolutionary War. So, mm-hmm. no new immigrants. You had Your family had had to be in there a while. Right. Which isn't that, like, doesn't, like, don't they still have those organizations today? Mm-hmm. American flags also started to be displayed all over in front of both public and private buildings. Hmm. Before this, I mean, people, like, some people had American flags and flags were sometimes flown, but they weren't, like, all over. Right. Like, you see them now. Right. But they were Probably starting- primarily a military use at the, at right. the time. Like- and I think it probably went way down, you know, in the southern half of the country when the Civil War broke out. Oh, sure. People down there didn't have American flags anymore. Mm-hmm. So they had the southern... They had the, yeah, the Confederate flag. But now popularity of the American flag is starting to increase. Mm-hmm. In 1891, the U.S. Commissioner of Education approved a proposal to fly flags over every public school building in the nation that author Wallace Evans Davies described as a curious faith in the beneficial effect that the mere physical presence of the banner had upon youth. Congress authorized funds for a new World Fair in Chicago that was scheduled for October 1892 that coincided with the 400th anniversary of Columbus's voyage to America. The World Fair would be a celebration of civilization in the New World and patriotism. I feel like we talked about something like this before. It was the 1904 World's Fair. Yeah. That's what I was thinking of. The cultural. There's a lot of World's Fairs. Well, sure. But I'm saying um, you're you're just like I'm flashing back or forward, I guess, in this case, to 1904 where we've got the cultural exhibits. Yeah. So this one was going to be on like everything that the New World... It's like brought to industry and and they're just like a bunch of mirrors. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's like the people walking around. It's like you. Like look how great we are. <laughs> God. In 1892, well, that was a waste of a nickel. <laughs> in 1892, one of the largest publications in the country was the Youth's Companion, a religious digest that was targeted towards children and had around half a million subscribers. Jeez. Writers like Mark Twain and Emily Dickinson often wrote for the Youth's Companion. One of the publication's main marketing tools was its premium or promotion programs, where children could win products or cash if they referred other customers. It's kind of like in schools today. Well, probably not this year. 
Yeah. <laughs> like where you'd Back be like, in the good old days. We'd get a catalog and be like, you have to sell this many things of cookie dough and you'll win. If you like sell like a thousand, you'll get a bike. Yeah. Kind of thing. Yeah. This was very similar. We'll give you a knockoff Schmishmendo Schmitch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Not quite the real thing, yeah. but if you sell a lot of cookie dough. So this was kind of the start of it. It was like, you sell so many subscriptions, you mm-hmm. get so many like certificates Ugh. and then you can- Who was this again? And then you can- cash these in for prizes it's called the youth's companion the youth's companion the youth's companion luckily our son isn't to that stage yet but i bet when by the time he is i'm going to be cursing the youth's companion <laughs> we're starting this yeah and so Jordan. yeah so they could win products or cash or even be entered into like a million dollar lottery was one of the prizes what? at one time yeah one of the most successful promotions was the American flag promotion. One of the companion's missions was to instill patriotism among the youth of America. Mm. So they combined this mission with their promotion program and launched the flag over the schoolhouse program. Young readers of the companion could sell subscription certificates for 10 cents apiece. When they sold 100 certificates, they would be able to purchase a flag for their school from the companion. The Companion also sold other flag paraphernalia, including... A That's $10 po- worth of subscriptions? hmm But each subscription is like $0.10. Cents. Or they get $0.10 cents in certificates. Commissions. Yeah. yeah. But it's like Companion Bucks. Yeah. Yeah. Was it called Companion Bucks? No. Yeah. I just came up with that. Yeah. That reminds me of like the fourth grade when we do the... You know, you do the Idaho history, state history. You know what I'm talking about? No, I don't think I did that. In fourth grade? Yeah. You were went to school in Idaho. I did, but I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, my gosh. Were you still in New Meadows at this point? No, I was in Riggins. Oh, man. That's a bummer, because, like, fourth grade, that was the best part. It was, like, you got to go to the rendezvous. I have no idea what like, that is. There was, like, five elementary schools. And each fourth grade class at each elementary school had, like, a thing they made. So, like, we made necklaces out of dried up potato. And then we, like, <laughs> painted them. And, like, you had this um, Native American... Um, oh, gosh, I can't think of the word for it. Uh, like, symbology. Uh, Petroglyphs? Yeah, yeah. You know, like... like Symbols, sure. And we like painted them on the on the on your potato necklaces. <laughs> on our potato necklaces, which like now I'm realizing is probably not at all like, historically accurate. I don't no. know what the potato was supposed to be emulating, but anyways, that was like apparently that was a big city, yeah, Idaho thing, so, not my small town. So anyways, so that so that year we also play a game of Oregon Trail, and it was like a it was like not like a LARP. But, like, the teacher would have, like, we'd play it for, like, two hours a day, and you'd have to make all these decisions. Like, everybody made their own decisions uh-huh. based off, like, the options the teacher presented. And then you got a, like, everything was worth a point. You know, you know, at the end of the semester, you add it all up. And based upon how many points you got, you got so many, like, beaver skins, which was, like, the currency. <laughs> sure. The companion bucks, right? Yeah. Use bucks. And... Oh my gosh, it was great. So then you could go around and you could buy like all these things that the other classes made. And I don't, like I don't other know. dried up potatoes? 
Well, I think I think there was a ton of different crafts. Sure. But yeah, I mean, and then they had like this. They had this like old cast iron pot over a fire that had chili in it. But like some little like turd fourth grader put a bunch of grass in it. So of like. You know, like, we got there at, like, it, towards the end of the day, and it was, like, it was just grass, and it was, like, they just, like, let the fire go out, because they didn't want the, uh, you know, I don't know. What, ch- small children to be running around in open flame? Yeah, yeah. But anyways, that was fond memories. <laughs> so that the, the companion box breaks me back to the, <laughs> to the rendezvous. Fourth grade rendezvous. Sounds awesome. Yeah. So, the Companion also sold other flag paraphernalia, including a pocket flag with its very own carrying case, so you always have your own American flag with you, <laughs> wall flags, so that you could put one up in your bedroom yeah. or your house, um, flag mending kits, and more. The Companion also ran an essay contest on the patriotic influence of the American flag when raised over the public schools. The school in each state that entered the winning essay received a flag that was 9 feet by 15 feet. That's a big flag. It's a big flag. It's huge. With the Chicago World Fair coming up, the Companion wanted to be a part of it and made plans to lobby for a national holiday that that celebrated the discovery of America and have public schools be the leaders of the holiday. Mm -hmm. October 12th, the day that Columbus made it to the Americas, would become Columbus Day. The Companion got to work organizing Columbus Day events in public schools across the country. Francis Bellamy, a 36-year-old who had recently left his job as a pastor of Boston's Bethany Baptist Church, was named chairman of the committee that would oversee the very first Columbus Day. Bellamy had recently given up preaching after he began to lose support from his congregation due to his increasingly socialist views. Hmm. Which was not cool when capitalism is, like, booming yeah. in America. Yeah. Not that socialist views have ever been widely accepted in America. No, no. definitely not accepted then. Yeah. At least not outright. Right. Bellamy visited Washington, D.C. to meet with the president and important congressmen to lobby for Columbus Day. Many were quick to endorse the new holiday since it cost the government basically nothing because the companion would cover all the costs. Mm -hmm. And they liked the idea of flags and patriotism being spread across the country. Congress approved a joint resolution that allowed the president to create a new national holiday, except that Congress demanded that it be held on October 21st and not the 12th due to differences in the Julian calendar and the Gregorian calendar. Ah. With the national holiday approved, Bellamy began to run ads in the Companion that promoted the holiday and flag sales that said things like, has your school yet obtained its flag for this great celebration? Ask your teacher to send for our flag certificates. 350 will buy a bunting flag of the best quality, six feet long, just right for a little country school. And for $5.35, a flag nine feet long. The boys can even cut the flag staff. There was a lot going on in that sentence. Send, send your sixth grade boys out to cut down a tree for a flagstaff, and we'll send you a flag for $5.35. Hmm. And how much was the big one? Well, so originally it was $10, but I think this is the Columbus Day special. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. yeah. So they're charging them, you know, 
lot lower margins of profit. Right. Because they're trying to get flags all, all across America. Basically every single school in America. Yeah. yeah. Bellamy also was working on a program that would be followed by the schools taking part in the celebration. The program featured a reading of President Harrison's proclamation of the new holiday, a group singing of America, My Country, Tis of Thee, and a prayer and scripture reading along with the song that the companion had commissioned for the holiday. So kind hmm. of like... So My Country, Tis of Thee was commissioned by the companion? No, it was sorry, it was a different song, but it didn't give me the title of the song. Uh-huh. This gave me like the words, and I mean, it was more about Columbus. Uh, so okay. it was like, it was not a great song. So I just did not include that here. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> but that was on top of my country, Tis of Thee. Uh, okay. Yeah. So this is kind of like, hey. So they like send this to the schools and be like, this is what you should do for Columbus Day. Yeah. Follow this list of activities. Yeah. Did they do it? Yeah. There would then be a ceremony where the flag would be raised on the flagstaff while the children recited a formal salute to the flag. <sighs> Are you going to read me the Pledge of Allegiance right now? <laughs> We're getting there. Oh, my gosh. That'd be, like, perfect for you right now. Like, this is what starts at. So, not right now, but we're getting to it. Is it is that is that what they're going to say right now? Is that what they said, though? Just, just, just wait for the story. Okay. There was a flag salute or pledge at the time that had been composed by Civil War veteran Colonel George T. Balch who had written the pledge for the first Flag Day celebration in 1885. The pledge went, I give my heart and my hand to my country, one country, one language, one flag. Mm -hmm. Bellamy felt that Balch's pledge was too juvenile and wanted to replace it with a pledge that was more dignified and carried more historical meaning. Bellamy wrote a new pledge that went, I pledge allegiance to my flag and the republic for which it stands. One nation, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Oh. So, this is actually about the Pledge of Allegiance and not Columbus. But <laughs> just how we get there. So, the Pledge of Allegiance yeah. was written for Columbus Day. No kidding. Yeah. Well, that's crazy. Though it was hard for children to say, Bellamy wanted the word... Indivisible. One- yeah, exactly. <laughs> Oh my gosh, just listening to like five-year-old uh, kindergartners trying to say indivisible. Yeah, there was a radio station that they would always play it at like 7.06 every morning. And it was always a recording and it was like, all right, this morning, you know, we've got Mrs. Miss Miss, uh, Miss So-and-So's class or Mr. So-and-So PE class. Yeah. And they'd say it and... Usually just, yeah, like... I'm pretty sure I thought it said... First or third graders. And I'm pretty sure I thought the pledge was One Nation Invisible for, like, the longest time. Yeah. And I don't think I'm alone in that. Yeah. So, even though Indivisible is very hard for children to say, he wanted it in the new pledge due to the divisions that were still being felt decades after the Civil War. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, we're an indivisible nation. Mm-hmm. Bellamy had at first written the end of the pledge as liberty, equality, and fraternity for all. But he then thought that was too remote and impossible of a realization, so he settled on liberty and justice for all. While reciting the words, the children were to lift their right hand with their palm downward, so the hand is in line with and close to their forehead. Like a like a military salute, almost. Did you see a picture of it? Yeah. 
Well, I didn't see a picture of this part. Okay. So you start out this way, and then when you get to the words, my so two. So you start here. Uh-huh. Yeah, but it's not quite that. It's like right at your forehead, I think. And then you pull it across. So when you get to the words, to my flag, the right hand was to extend out, and then the palm would then turn up towards the flag. Ooh. Like right out in front of you. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> That's a lot. It's not great now. <laughs> it's not a great move now. <laughs> yeah. So, for those of you at home, I'll explain the hand motions. Jordan was holding her head with her elbow bent, her hand. Like a salute. The tips of her fingers. Nah, no. Okay, but like like for us noobs, like civilians, like that don't know. So, anyways, her hand's like across her forehead, like halfway up. And then, as you say, what part do you say? When it gets to to my flag, to my flag, you you just extend your arm and hand towards the flag, keeping your hand, your palm keeping up, your palm up, which is a little. It's a little. It's a little. Uh, God, did Hitler just like watch American history lessons? Well, you think because he stole a lot of stuff from ah, us. <laughs> gosh, or was that like a common arm signal for? I don't think so. I think he was like, "This is it. Like, I created this just for our flag. This would yeah. be great." And I think it was like hand up to like lift up the flag as yeah. it's being raised. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is okay, but it's I... like back then, before Nazis, it was fine. Yeah. <laughs> and then at the end of the pledge, all hands were to drop immediately to your side. Hmm. The new pledge was included with the official Columbus Day program and sent out to schools across the nation. Bellamy attended the Columbus Day celebration at a school in Malden, Massachusetts, where he listened to 4,000 boys recite his pledge. When he listened to them, he was like, ah, it doesn't quite flow right. So he decided to add an additional two in front of the words, the Republic. So, instead of, I pledge allegiance to my flag and the Republic, it was now, and to the Republic. Hmm. Bellamy had more reasons to write the pledge, though, than just for the Columbus Day celebration. Due to the influx of immigration, Bellamy was worried that Americans were losing their identity and that immigrants were not patriotic enough towards their new country. Hmm. Bellamy stated that the new immigrants were races which we cannot assimilate without a lowering of our racial standard. And that although the United States has always been a nation of immigrants, the incoming waves of immigrants are coming from countries who institutions are entirely at variance with our own. He argued that every alien immigrant of inferior race eroded traditional values, and making them pledge their allegiance would ensure that the distinctive principles of true Americanism would not perish as long as free public education endures. The pledge made the new country real to immigrant children, and the flag had the power to Americanize them. So when he originally thought of saying, Liberty, Equality, and Fraternity for All, he was like, oh, well, I'm not going to put equality because he believed not all men were born equal. Mm. He definitely believed some races were inferior. And so that's why he took out equality Jeez. and fraternity. Because he was also a racist. Man, I thought we were doing good on this one. Nope. <laughs> it's everywhere. After that first Columbus Day, many of the portions of the program were forgotten, all except for the Bellamy Pledge. 
Six months later, Bellamy helped install a flagpole on the New Jersey coast where the first adult recitation of his pledge took place. Across the country, American citizens began to use the pledge as an act of deference towards the flag. In 1898, New York State passed a statute that a U.S. flag be flown over all public schools in the state and for there to be a salute to the flag at the opening of each day of school. Hmm. In 1899, the Grand Army of the Republic, which is kind of like a fraternal organization of Union soldiers, Mm -hmm. they officially endorsed the salute and stated that if any state did not have a law requiring a flag to be flown daily over every schoolhouse, they should be urged to do so. The pledge began to become widespread across the country. Mm -hmm. Demand for flags had an all-time high when America entered into World War I in 1917. Around this time, Major League Baseball began playing the Star-Spangled Banner at the beginning of every game. As the sale and presentation of flags grew, prosecutions for desecrating or insulting the flag also grew. State flag laws stated that no person shall publicly mutilate, deface, defile, defy, trample upon, or by word or act cast contempt upon any such flag, standard, color, ensign, or shield. A man from Montana named E.V. Starr was sentenced to 10 years in prison when he refused to kiss the flag and said it was nothing but a piece of cotton with a little paint on it and some other marks in the corner there. I will not kiss that thing. It might be covered with microbes. Hmm. And because the Sedition Act had also just been passed, Mm -hmm. which states that you were not to speak out against the country Mm -hmm. or the president... This was seen as an act of sedition, and he was sentenced to 10 years in prison. That's crazy. Yeah. Hmm. In 1918, Mennonites were the first religious group to mount an objection to the pledge. They stated that the pledging allegiance to a flag as we see it, though we honor and respect it, at least implies a pledge to defend it against all its enemies, which would mean to resort to arms and to take human life. Hmm. Which Mennonites were... Vowed to be peaceful right. and nonviolent. Right. In Ohio, a Mennonite father instructed his nine-year-old daughter to not recite the pledge at school. Each day that she refused to recite the pledge, she was sent home from school. The father was then arrested and convicted of allowing his child to be truant from school. <laughs> the father appealed his conviction, stating that he did not keep his child home from school, but that the school had sent her home. The op- The appeals court sided with the lower court, concluding that if the father had not told his daughter not to recite the pledge, she would have been able to stay in school. So it was the father's fault that she was truant. The court also stated that such conduct on the part of our citizens is not conscionable, for conscience would lead to respect for government and to its defense, especially in time of war, but rather it is the forerunner of disloyalty and treason. Mm. In 1919, Washington State passed a mandatory pledge. So what law. happened? Did it end there? The yeah, it appeals? ended there, and he went to jail. He didn't appeal it higher. No. Ugh. In 1919, Washington State passed a mandatory pledge law that stated that school boards in Washington shall cause appropriate flag exercises to be held in every school at least once a week, at which exercises the pupils shall recite the salute to the flag. So that was the first law passed by a state 
that required schools to recite the pledge. Washington State. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Which happened right after a huge union strike. And they're like, well, that was unpatriotic. So they're trying to instill... The whole pledge thing is trying to instill patriotism into youth. Yeah. Is their whole point yeah. of making them recite the pledge. Yeah. Which I think, like, I don't know. Maybe it has generally good intent. And just poor execution. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, well, I think it's just... You know, sometimes these things where you're like, wow, this is great, and who doesn't want to be patriotic? Yeah. That you, it almost blinds people to see, like, how it might cause distress or offend somebody. Yeah. And I'm like, when I say offense, I don't mean, like, hurt feelings and stuff, but it's just like, like, I I think the Mennonite case, like, that's, I can understand, I could see that. Like, that's not an illogical argument. You know, because, like, when I take an oath, when I took the oath, it was to the Constitution of the United States and against all enemies. Right. It's like, you know, I don't think it's that far off then. Yeah. So. In 1924, the Americanism Commission met and decided to amend the pledge. The pledge was changed from I pledge allegiance to my flag to I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America so that immigrants wouldn't be confused as to what flag they were pledging their allegiance to. During the 1930s, many Americans became concerned that the hand salute to the flag was very similar to that of the Nazi Sieg Heil. Yeah. Some groups, like the Daughters of the American Revolution and the U.S. Flag Association, dismissed concerns, feeling that Americans had been using the hand salute for the flag much longer than the Nazis had been using it, and that it wasn't fair to have to change it. It's not fair! We we did it first! (laughs) In 1930s... Yeah, but somebody adopted it. And I wonder where they got the idea from Nazis for your nationalism. Just, na- Nazis just tend to ruin everything. Mm-hmm. Raining on raining on all the praise. Yeah. In 1935, Jehovah's Witnesses began to take up opposition towards the Pledge of Allegiance. Yeah. Around 10,000 Jehovah's Witnesses had been sent to concentration camps for refusing to perform the Sig Heil salute. Mm-hmm. The witnesses saw a lot of similarities between the Nazi salute and the pledge salute. What? Not only, like, the hand, but pledging your allegiance right. to any, to, like, a government. Right. Like, you can, you can still be a patriot. In my mind, you can be a patriot and, and not necessarily fully agree with and give your un- everything. dying I mean, allegiance to your and federal because, government. Right. Because think about it. Like, if that were true, I don't want to say 50-50. I'm going to say 40-40 because I believe there's 20% of Americans who could be considered independent. Yeah. But I'm going to say, like, at any given point in time, there's 60% of America that is who, not-, not patriotic because they didn't vote for the person who has... You know what I'm saying? Right. It doesn't mean that they don't love their country, but right. they're not in love with their current government. Sure. Right. That's what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. And I definitely think those two are, you know, separate. 
Oh, I, I agree, too. Your country yeah. is not necessarily the same thing as your government. Right. And what Jehovah's Witnesses were saying, we're like, we love our country, but we're not willing to pledge allegiance to the government. Mm-hmm. Because, and you saw what happened to us when we didn't do that in Nazi Germany. Right. We were sent to concentration camps. Yeah. We don't want that to happen here. And, we, and so we're they're taking like, issue with it. So they're like, balls in your court, America? Yeah. What are you going to do? You can put us in concentration camps? Yeah. And, and America's like, don't tempt us. Oh, God. Really? We're doing it to the Japanese. Yeah. Je- well, they didn't actually say that to Jehovah's Witnesses, but, okay. you know, they're probably thinking it. Yeah, unfortunately. Jehovah's Witnesses had also been arrested in Massachusetts for refusing to participate in a pledge salute. Hmm. The case of the Witnesses that had been arrested made it to the Massachusetts Supreme Court, where the Supreme Court found no violation of religious freedom and a mandatory obligation for reciting the pledge. As more and more Jehovah's Witness children were expelled from schools for refusing to recite the pledge, Jehovah's Witnesses built more and more private schools that would offer an education to their children. Hmm. One Witness family filed a lawsuit against their local school board after their children were expelled, and they were represented by the ACLU. The lawsuit was awarded to the Witness family, but the school board, who was backed by the American Legion, kept appealing the case all the way up into the Supreme Court, which agreed to hear it in 1940. The Supreme Court ruled in favor of the school board, stating that it would not make itself the school board for the country, and that the nation needed loyalty and the unity of all people, and because saluting the flag was a primary means of achieving that goal, an issue of national importance was at stake. Hmm. What yeah. was that? What was that case? It was, I didn't write it down, but it was like go to be or something like that. I know it started with a G. Following that decision, thousands of witness children were expelled from schools, and many witnesses were jailed for sedition or just run out of town. A southern town sheriff escorted 60 witnesses out of his town and told a reporter, they're traitors. The Supreme Court says so. Ain't you heard? So even though they're not being sent to concentration camps, they're being, like, forced out of their homes. Yeah, yeah. There was also tarring and feathering of witnesses, castrations. Wait, witnesses? What do you mean witnesses? By witnesses, I mean Jehovah's Witnesses. Okay. Just shortening it. Yeah. Um, So tarring and feathering, castrations and public beatings that were overseen by police and city officials across the country. In 1943, the Supreme Court's ruling was overturned, stating that due to the free free speech principle, no school child should be compelled to recite the pledge. So really, they were starting to see similarities between what was happening to Jehovah's Witnesses in America, to Jehovah's Witnesses in Nazi Germany, and they're like, hey, we're America... We don't want to be Nazi Germany. And so they overturned their own ruling on that case. That's crazy. In 1942, Congress passed Public Law 829, which laid out the rules for use and display of the flag, conduct during the national anthem, the words of the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag, and the raised arm salute. The raised arm salute is still happening. In 1942, the pledge was now an official U.S. slogan, though later that year, Congress amended the law by changing the salute from a raised arm to a salute of the right hand over your heart. Hmm. So 
they finally changed it. The one that remains today. Yes. Hmm. I like this one better. Yeah. Your arm doesn't get as tired. It's not like Nazis. That's the main reason. Yeah. In 1954, the Knights of Columbus, a Catholic fraternal organization, lobbied Congress to add the words under God and between one nation and indivisible. The bill's sponsors anticipated pushback of the new wording as a breach of the separation of church and state, but they argued that a distinction must be made between the existence of a religion as an institution and the belief in the sovereignty of God. The phrase under God recognizes only the guidance of God in our national affairs. On June 14, 1954, President Dwight D. Eisenhower signed the bill into law. Hmm. Isn't it kind of crazy that under God wasn't even added until the 50s? Yeah. That's crazy to me that the Pledge of Allegiance wasn't even created until like the, the late, late 1800s. Yeah. In 2004, a case was brought in front of the Supreme Court by a man that believed his kindergarten-aged daughter was being coerced into proclaiming an expression of faith due to the words under God. Because the man was not married to the child's mother and did not have direct custody of the child, the Supreme Court ruled that he did not have standing to bring the suit, so the case was thrown out. Mm. Though it was thrown out on a technicality, three of the justices argued that the phrase under God did not violate the constitutional separation of church and state. Justice Sandra Day O'Connor said that the phrase was merely ceremonial deism, similar to in God we trust that is printed on money. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So that is the story of the Pledge of Allegiance. And it started as a PR gimmick. Yeah. It started as a way for a private corporation to profit in America. To sell flags to children. Yes. We'll call it... What should we call it? Uh, oh, come on. we got to have some Latin words laying around here that... <laughs> I mean, love of one's country. Yeah. I don't think patriot is a Latin word, though. I don't think so. <laughs> Sources for this story are The Pledge, A History of the Pledge of Allegiance by Jeffrey Owen Jones and Peter Meyer, Richard J. Ellis and the Pledge of Allegiance by NPR's Fresh Air, How the Pledge of Allegiance Went from Pierre Gimmick to Patriotic Vow by Amy Crawford, hmm. and Presidential History Trivia, Which President's Life Was Almost Saved by Inventor Alexander Graham Bell? God, was I right? It was no. too early, wasn't I? It was President James Garfield. Oh, so it was late? Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. That's crazy. So, he was shot. His He was taken back to the White House. Mm -hmm. After he was shot, he was still alive. His doctor, who his first name was Doctor, by the way. His name was Dr. Bliss. So it was Dr. Dr. Bliss. Get me Dr. Doctor, please. <laughs> yeah. So he was like, I can't find the bullets, and just stuck his unwashed hands into Ew. the bullet wounds and tried to find the bullets. Couldn't find anything. And then the president started leaking yellow pus, like, out of his wounds. Uh. So then Alexander Graham Bell hears about this. He's like, hey, I've been messing around with my new invention, a metal detector. Why don't I come try that out on the president? The doctor was like, yeah, 
I think I'm probably making it worse. I don't think he said that, but he definitely was. He's like, try it out. He was like, we've got nothing to lose. Yeah. Except the president. (laughs) So Alexander Graham Bell comes to the White House with his metal detector, but he can't find the bullets because the president is laying on a bed with metal Metal bed springs. springs, Mm -hmm. And nobody like thought to just take him off the bed for a second so they can find the bullets put him on the wooden floor yeah, literally exactly and he died Aww. but alexander graham bell tried yeah tried his darndest wait tried to save the president's life tried to save hmm should have given it away it's one of the one of the few that's been assassinated yeah yep so that was presidential history trivia. So once again, we just want to say thank you all to, you know, listening to us, some of you, for a whole year. Yeah. We appreciate it yeah. a lot. And we look forward to another year, hopefully more. Oh, in the future. <laughs> Decades. Decades. <laughs> Decades of listening Decades to get caught up on. So we just appreciate it and... We appreciate you guys. So we guys, we hope you guys stay safe. Stay healthy. And until next time, stay, stay weird, America. America.